Well, good morning. One of the things I love to do in Bible study is to see how the whole beautiful story of the Bible unfolds. Probably the most important thing for us to understand when we read the Bible is to understand what, or really rather who, the Bible is about. The Bible's not about us, even though, as we'll see, you and I have a, a part in this whole narrative. The Bible's not designed to be a handbook of morality or a recipe book for success or, or a self-help book even to live better lives. I mean, certainly we can gain insight into those areas as we read our Bible. But ultimately, the Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament reveals mankind's need for a Savior and illustrates through the unfolding of history just how God prepared the way for Jesus to come. The New Testament shows how Old Testament promises are fulfilled in Jesus and how all of those promises will be completed when Jesus himself returns. Now, understanding this whole beautiful narrative is really very useful when we come to passages like the one we're studying today where references are made to Old Testament books like Exodus and Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Hosea. Looking back to the Old Testament and seeing how God was dealing with his people gives us more insight ourselves into what the Holy Spirit is communicating to us through Scripture. So there are various ways that people describe this unfolding storyline of the Bible, this whole unfolding of the revelation of Jesus Christ, his, his person and his work. So I think reviewing a couple of these today is going to be useful as we dig into 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. Now, the first way I want to use to describe this storyline of the Bible is a simple way that, in fact, the Bible uses itself. And I'm speaking about Paul when he goes to the Areopagus in Acts 17. He's talking to the Greeks in Athens about God and his work. And he's talking to people who have no concept about the Bible whatsoever. And we can use some shorthand ourselves to remember this and bring it to mind when explaining the Bible to non-Christians or those who maybe only have a minimal level of understanding about the Bible and about our faith. And here's the shorthand, four words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We can simplify it down that way to give people just a basic understanding. The gospel itself has been described as a pool in which a toddler can wade and yet in which an elephant can swim. So the gospel can be understood very simply, but it's so deep that we'll never exhaust all the depths of it. But we can simplify it in this way so that we can use these four words to get through it. And if we memorize them, maybe think of some verses that go along with them, it'll help us when we communicate the gospel to other people and show them that the story of the gospel is a coherent whole that, that makes God's work with humanity very understandable. And this is something you can do. And, and as we go through this morning, we'll talk about why it's important that this is something that you can do. And so we're taking these steps to go through this whole story for a couple of reasons. One, to better understand the background of Peter's words. And uh, secondly, so that we're equipped to do the things that God has called us to do. So this is very basic, and of course you're going to fill in more gaps in there. But uh, we're just going into this little small pool that the toddler can wade in. So here we go. Four words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So we look at creation. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. That's where the Bible starts out. But God placed humanity, our first parents, in the sort of world we would all want. It's a peaceful world, a world of plenty, a world without death or disease or conflict, a world most people want to see. And God called that very good. But then what happened? Next word in the list, the fall. Humanity, those first humans, they rebelled against God. They disobeyed Him and that unleashed evil and injustice and disease and death upon the world. Where once there was plenty, now hardship. Where once there was no death or disease, those were brought into creation by man's mistrust and disobedience of God. And that's what we see now. All these things we see now that upset us, the disintegration of society, of our environment, of our bodies, of our minds, everything bad that came into creation came in through that rebellion. Things fell apart. Things continue to fall apart. Then we have redemption. Even from the time of man's rebellion, even from that very time, God was merciful. And God promised that there would be one who would come. He would send a Savior to make things right. And after many generations, Jesus came forth in human flesh. He came into the world. Jesus came to the world. He lived that life of perfect obedience to God. And by doing so, fulfilled the requirements of God's law on our behalf. And in his humanity, he also took on our punishment. He died as a victim of man's injustice and sin. He took the penalty for evil and our sin on himself in his place, in our place. Jesus died this terrible death on the cross. He was executed even though he was perfectly innocent. But Jesus defeated death by rising from the grave on the third day after his death. And that brings the end of the story. Restoration. Because Jesus bore the penalty for our sin, we can be forgiven for our sin when we have faith in Jesus. One day Jesus will return to judge the whole world. And he will destroy death and evil when he returns. Without destroying those who have faith in him. He's going to usher in a new world where there is peace and plenty. A world without death or disease or conflict. And in that world, God will dwell with his people forever. So there you have it. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Shorthand for telling the whole story of the Bible. Now I'll admit there's a lot that's left out in that story. And it doesn't come anywhere close to telling the whole detail. But those words, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, give us an outline to explain to people why sin and death and decay and disease exist and explain to them why it is we need a Savior. It's a great witnessing tool that you can remember. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Fill in the details the way that works best for you. Now, one other way to look at this, and we're going to do this just briefly, but we're doing it because it leads into where we are today, is to look at a series of covenants that came forward in the Old Testament. What's great about each of these is they look forward to Jesus and each has their fulfillment in Jesus. And again, we're doing this just for a little background so we see what Peter's referring to in some of the words he has for us today. 
So this way of looking at the Bible story shows us six covenants that explain this whole story arc of the Bible. The six covenants are, here we go, creation, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. All of those pointing to Jesus in the new covenant. Creation. Mankind rebelled against God and brought the fall, but God promised that one would come who would set things right, and that's Jesus. The first gospel, and you see that promised in Genesis 3.15. The next one, Noah. God gathered Noah, his sons and their wives, and at least two of each animal, seven where they needed a clean animal for sacrifice, seven clean animals and birds, God gave a rainbow as the sign of the covenant, and he promised never to wipe out the world by flood again. When Jesus returns, the world will be changed and destroyed and made over, but not by flood, but by fire. We can rest in that promise, the world will not be wiped out by flood, and that Jesus will return to make things right. The fulfillment, the completion of that covenant with Noah, that's in Jesus. Abraham. Now, God promised Abraham that his offspring would be numbered like the the sands or like the stars in the sky. And and indeed, Abraham has had innumerable uh, physical descendants. But more importantly, his real offspring, his spiritual offspring, are the multitude of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the offspring through whom the world would be blessed that was promised to Abraham. The fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham is Jesus. There's Moses, the commandments given to Moses at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the law. And God told Moses, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then God gave sacrifices to Israel to be performed at the tabernacle and then later on at the temple. Israel eventually failed, though, to be that kingdom of priests and to be that holy nation. And though Israel failed to keep the covenant, Jesus did keep it. Jesus kept the law perfectly. And he is the final once for all time sacrifice for sin, as it's said in Hebrews. The covenant with Moses, that covenant at Mount Sinai, is fulfilled by Jesus. And then there's David. God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his offspring would sit on his throne forever. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne 
shall be established forever. Well, that promised offspring, that sure wasn't David's son Solomon. We talked about him in Sunday school today too. The kingdom of Israel hit its apex under Solomon, but it also began its decline. Solomon had 700 wives who led him into idolatry. And he gathered all this wealth that corrupted him. And then under this split kingdom of his successors, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the, the kingdom split apart and Israel declined further and further into idolatry, with very few exceptions along the way. Israel was conquered and dispersed. Judah was carried off into exile like we studied in Daniel. But the genealogies of Matthew and Luke show us that Jesus is a descendant and offspring of David. Jesus is the king on the throne forever. Jesus fulfills that covenant with David. So, okay, creation, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. That leaves the new covenant. A restoration and fulfillment of the promises made to the people of God. A fulfillment that is told about in the writings of the prophets. Jeremiah promised a new covenant in which all would know the Lord. Ezekiel promised a new spirit within God's people. And that brings us to Hosea, which is referenced by Peter in his letter. Hosea tells the story of an Israel who was unfaithful to God, but also of a God who remained faithful and who would one day restore a people to himself. God illustrates this unfaithfulness by commanding Hosea to take a prostitute as his wife. And God says to Hosea, as Gomer, his wife, bears a daughter, And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now the inference here is that the daughter is not Hosea's because Gomer is unfaithful. And so Hosea has no mercy for her. And the inference is that the son is not Hosea's son. The son is not my people. But however, after a time of punishment and exile, Hosea says that God will extend mercy and will welcome back a people to himself. And in verse 23 of chapter 2 of Hosea, it says, And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people, and he shall say, You are my God. And so though Israel has failed the commission of Exodus 19, we see this promise that God will indeed once again call a people for his own possession. So that's the background leading up to our passage today from 1 Peter. Peter is showing us that in Christ the church becomes the royal priesthood, the chosen race, those who are God's people and those who receive God's mercy. And the church, you and me, believers here gathered together under this roof and gathered together all over the world and those that have gone on before us, we are all part of this unfolding story. So to recap it, 
The Bible is about Jesus. The story of the Bible can be expressed in different ways, but each leads to Jesus at its center, whether we use that creation, fall, redemption, and restoration framework to remind us, or whether it's the progressive unfolding of covenants with creation, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and culminating in this glorious new covenant. We've seen the story of the gospel as a wading pool, and now we've swum in a little deeper. And if you really want to jump in and swim, a lot of books have been written. Up in our library, we have a book by Greg Beal and D.A. Carson that is uh, bigger than one of those big dictionaries that shows all the places where the New Testament refers back to the Old. And if you're doing some study, it'll just blow your mind and open your eyes to see all the ways things are tied together. Well, now that we've had that introduction through the storyline of the Bible, let's look at what Peter has to tell us in this passage here from his first letter. Now, here's uh, an important reminder. In English, we use the same word for you in the singular and the plural. We use you for you right there, and we use you for all of you out here. They haven't used y'all and all y'all in the ESV, unfortunately for us. But in the Greek from which our New Testament is translated, you singular and you plural are two different words. Every place we see you and your in this passage today is plural. So it's talking about all of us together, all of us here as the church. So Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. On this passage, we're going to look at three basic points. The first two we're going to look at together. And these are who we were and who we now are. We'll compare one to the other. Who we were, who we now are. And then the third point is from those. Given who we were, And who we now are, what do we do with that? What are we called to do? Who are we called to be as the church, as those called out of darkness? So let's take a look at that. Who were we? Who were we all before we came to know Christ? Those of us who are believers among us today. Peter tells us we were not God's people. That we received no mercy. And that we were in darkness. We were not God's people. Even though the Bible tells us that God had chosen his people before the foundation of the world, there was a time when we were not yet his people. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were by nature children of wrath. There was a time for everyone here that we were not part of God's people. We were not part of his universal church. But that changed for each and every one of us here who are believers when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. We were adopted as sons and daughters with Jesus, our brother. 
heirs according to God's promises. As it says in Ephesians, you know, we were not God's people, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's because of faith in Jesus Christ that those of us who were once not God's people, now we are God's people. And I'd like to take this opportunity to address something also to the young people in this church. God has blessed this church's families with so many children. I mean, you see this right now as you look around or as you maybe listen a little bit and you especially see it on Wednesday nights when play practice is going on and there's just this multitude of kids. But I want the children of this church to hear something very important. You see, the Bible tells us that you don't become a Christian just by having believing parents. Every one of us, every individual one of us, needs to come to faith in Jesus Christ on our own. John's Gospel tells it's not by being born or from our own effort, from working really hard, that we become a Christian. And now I know, kids here, I know that, that probably each and every one of you here probably knows a lot about Jesus. You know he was born in a manger, right? You know he grew up. You know he was obedient to his parents. He was, he was perfect in all his conduct. And you know the story about what happened to Easter. You know that he was crucified on the cross, but then there was good news, right? That one day he rose again from the dead. All the kids here probably know that very well and probably can tell all kinds of stories about that. But you know, it's not just enough to know about Jesus. You, each and every one of you individually, has to know him yourself. And we all need to know him because every one of us has gone through the same thing. Every one of us, every grown-up here, was at one time or another, and perhaps a lot of times, disobedient to their parents. Everybody here, kids, grown-ups, has told a lie at some time. Probably most of you have have stolen something along the way, and you all know that that's wrong, and you all know that God wants us to be good and holy, and we just can't manage to do that all the time. None of us are perfect. All of us have fallen short of God's glory, right? And that's why all of us need a Savior. God wants us to be perfect like, his, like, like He is, holy like He is. A lot of times we don't want to be. A lot of times instead we want to be bad. And I think most of the kids and adults here know this. You know the gospel. You know that Jesus died for our sins. Again, you know he rose from the grave. You know, as we say every week, that he sits at the right hand of the Father and Jesus will return to judge the wicked. And you know that those who have faith in Jesus will get to be with him forever. But it's not enough just to know that. You have to... Do more than know about Jesus. You have to know him yourself. How do we do that? Jesus told us we must be born again. What happens with that? 
That's when you know that you do these things, that you disobey your parents, you disobey God. You turn from that and you say, I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to obey you. I want to turn from those things and I want to be yours. They call that repentance. That's turning away from those bad things and turning to those things that are good and right and holy with God. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. You can do that. And every individual needs to do that themselves. And when we do that, Jesus gives us a new heart that can love him and obey him. And when you come to know him and you know that, that he is your Lord and Savior, then you can show that you can, you can go and, and make that outward statement under those waters of baptism as a sign that, that God has cleaned us up and that he forgives us. And what does that do? That takes you from being not God's people and makes you one of God's people. So I'm going to ask all of you today, kids, adults, if you haven't turned to Jesus yet to forgive you, today can be a great day to do that. Any day. Today can be the day of your salvation. I had to grow up and live many years without knowing Jesus. But maybe for you that day could be today. And so... Once we were not God's people, but now we who know Jesus, we are God's people. And once we had no mercy, what does it mean to have no mercy? Probably if you turn on the TV and watch some football today, you'll hear it in light of a sports event. They'll probably interview one of the coaches and he says, we're going to have no mercy on our opponents today, meaning they're going to work as hard as they can to have victory in that game. But that doesn't totally capture what we're talking about here to have no mercy. What about, what about in a war? If you show someone no mercy, what does that mean? It means they have no way out. They have no means of escape. You won't give them any chance at all. That's what no mercy means. And isn't that where every human being stands without Jesus? Without Jesus, we stand in opposition to God. And without Jesus, we can expect and we can receive no mercy. It was about 370 years ago that Jonathan Edwards delivered a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You can listen to audio of it online. Different people have read it. And man, it's chilling. It'll knock you right back on your, on your seat when you read it. But he painted a chilling picture of what it's like to have no mercy. He wrote, The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as, un, as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He's of purer eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in yours. You've offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it's nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not got to hell the last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. There's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. That's what it's like when you've received no mercy. 
And if you're in that situation, there is great news for you. The Bible tells us so many times about how God is patient and long-suffering. If you know Jesus and you have received mercy, then you probably know how patient Jesus was with you. But if you've not turned to him, you've not come to feel that mercy, and you know that you are in that condition that Jonathan Edwards described. God is patient. He does not want you to perish, but desires you to come to repentance. And you here who do know Jesus, you have received mercy. You were not God's people, but now you are God's people. No mercy, but now you've received mercy. And once, once you were in darkness, darkness is a dangerous and troubling and scary place to be. A lot of bad things happen under the cover of darkness. Criminals use the cover of darkness to sneak about and to steal. People who are trying to get away with something, they'll sneak about in a dark place, maybe a dark nightclub or bar and go into the darkest corner of that. People sneak about in dark places to avoid being caught cheating or stealing or even uh, go into those places to see things that they shouldn't or just to be in places they shouldn't be. And in the dark, we fumble around. You ever have the lights go out and you don't have a flashlight? How about if you're in an unfamiliar place? You do that, you're going to probably stumble and fall because you can't see where you're going. But now, now we're in the light. First John reminds us that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And in his Gospel, John writes that the life of Jesus is the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I don't care how much darkness you have, one little candle can't be snuffed out by that darkness. But the Bible tells us that instead of loving the light, John writes... People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You were not a people, but now you are God's people. You did not receive mercy before, but now you have received mercy. You walked in darkness, but you've been delivered from darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus. You are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That was who you were. This, this, beloved, is who you now are. So that gives gives us our third point. What do we do now? We proclaim him, we reflect him, and we glorify him. It's because we've been delivered from the domain of darkness that we are called to proclaim him, to proclaim his excellencies. But we, the church, we're woefully inadequate at that, aren't we? Do you think we're doing a good job at that? And I don't mean just here, I mean all over. But we're part of all over, aren't we? Are we doing a good job at that? Even inside the church, in churches all across this country, we fail to do that. Every Sunday, in churches around our area and churches all over the U.S., 
there are churches in which the gospel is not preached. People will hear advice on life. They'll hear moralism. They'll hear funny stories, maybe see a skit or a play or something like that. But they won't hear the gospel, and it's the gospel that brings life. This very Sunday, in pulpits all over the U.S., there's something like 1,500 pastors who are observing something they call Pulpit Freedom Sunday, taking political viewpoints and endorsing candidates to protest tax law that prohibits supposedly political speech for nonprofit organizations. Well, no matter how you feel about this law, for it or against it, understand this. The problem in this country is not that there's too little politics in the pulpit. The problem is there's too little gospel in the pulpits and too little gospel out in the public square. We who have been given a great gift by God are called to tell people about this gift. If you ever gotten a gift for your for your birthday or for Christmas, you were so excited about you couldn't wait to tell everyone about it. When I was 13 years old, the thing I wanted so much, as I was looking to my 14th birthday, the thing I wanted so much was a Swiss Army knife. And uh, I still have it. It's about 100 years old now, if you do the math. Uh, on my birthday, my parents gave me one. And I was so excited, I couldn't wait when I went to school to tell everyone, hey, look what I got, I got this this new Swiss Army knife. I was so excited. Why don't we feel the same way about the free gift of the gospel? This free gift of everlasting life we've been given in Jesus? Why are we so reluctant to tell everyone about the one who's rescued us from the domain of darkness? I mean, I hope it's not that we're ashamed of the gospel. What did Paul say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The good news of the gospel is what saved us. It's, it's not complicated. We went through that before, right? A, a toddler can wade in it. We can explain it to anyone in those words, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The good news is for everyone, and we're called to carry it to everyone. We're called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're called to proclaim Jesus. Next, we're called to reflect Jesus. Peter writes in verses 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. God did not call us in Jesus to walk in darkness, but to walk in the light as he is in the light. God has given us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to walk as that chosen nation. We've got that spirit to do that. And while our works can't save us one lick, even our best deeds are really only what's expected of us, God has called us to do good works befitting our calling as Christians. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus reminds us of what he expects of us. He says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty? When did we give you drink? When did that happen? And 
When, we, did we see, when did we see a stranger and welcome you or, or see someone naked and clothe you? And when did we see you in sick, sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. God has prepared good works for us so that we might walk in them. And this way we reflect the love of God to humanity. So, we're to proclaim Jesus and we're to reflect Jesus. And we're also to glorify Jesus. We glorify Jesus when we trust in Him. We glorify Jesus when we walk in His light and we glorify Jesus when we find our joy in Him. It's the daily preaching of the gospel to ourselves and daily walking in the joy and gratitude of that marvelous light that causes us to grow in Christ and to be conformed more and more daily to His image. But in our call to proclaim Jesus, our call to reflect Jesus, and our call to glorify Jesus, we are not promised a carefree, easy, and comfortable life. As Christians, our best life awaits us in heaven. Our best life is not right here and now. It should not surprise us when we see Christians persecuted and humiliated and mistreated all around the world. But it shouldn't surprise us, but we don't even really see it much here in the U.S. And maybe sometimes when we think, well, they're not letting us pray in school or they're not letting us put our our, uh, nativity scenes up that we're being persecuted. Uh, Go somewhere else around the world and tell me that that's persecution. But we should expect it. Jesus told us, In John's Gospel, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you, and that you can expect this persecution. This suffering and sacrifice for Jesus is part of serving him. Paul reminds the Corinthians in in, uh, his second letter to them that we share abundantly in Christ's suffering so we can give comfort to others. That suffering for the Gospel is a real thing we're called to endure. We suffer to to comfort others, and that comfort is more than creature comforts. It is the comfort of knowing that we have a life eternal in Jesus. Even when we're persecuted, Jesus is our joy. Now, there are probably some things that we can do to, to maybe step a little outside ourselves. Not everybody can do the things that we've heard about. Not everybody can do what Anna did. Not everybody can do what our friends at 441 Ministries in Beachwood have done where people uprooted their families and went into a difficult neighborhood and live there now and have become part of the fabric of a very dangerous and crime-ridden place and through their presence there are transforming it. I I don't want to make them blush, but even Wednesday night we heard Glenn talk about how he and Ann stepped forward in faith and for the last four years they've trusted God to provide so that they could serve people. We can even do it in little small ways. That $4 cup of coffee at the uh, coffee shop. You brew a pot of coffee at home, take the bank from the rest of that, that can support some sort of a mission or that can help feed somebody. There are different ways like that that we can step ahead a little bit and maybe do just a little bit more for the gospel. Especially those of us who really haven't had to sacrifice or suffer. Jesus said to us, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, 
and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our works are to glorify him, the one who brought us out of darkness into that marvelous light. Well, let's, let's bring this home. Once you believers, you were not a people, but now you, brothers and sisters, are God's people. Once you received no mercy, but now you've received abundant mercy. Overflowing mercy is yours. Once you were in darkness, but now you're in his marvelous light. You have been called church, brothers and sisters, beloved. You've been called to fulfill what Israel could not fulfill. Through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. You are his. And as that people, that race, that priesthood, as God's own people redeemed in Christ, you are called to proclaim him and reflect him and live in the light of his glory. And that story we visited at the beginning of our time together this morning, that work that Jesus is doing to redeem a people to himself, that story arc outlined by creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I think some of the ladies who are doing the the book study downstairs for Sunday school are learning this. You are part of that story. Maybe the book isn't about you. The Bible's not about you. But you are in that book. And you who are in Christ, you're part of that happy ending. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. If you're in Christ, that's you who that story is talking about right there. We get to be part of that happy ending, that restoration. We have that to look forward to. But until then, tomorrow, next week, a thousand years from now, Until then, let's not shy away from proclaiming the excellencies, the amazing glory, the love, the goodness, the holiness and wonder of Jesus. Jesus, the one who has rescued you out of that domain of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you did send Jesus that once we were not a people, but now we are His people. That we were without mercy, but now You've given us mercy. That we were in darkness, but now we get to bask in Your marvelous light. We pray that as those people, we would proclaim You, reflect You, that our lives would be lived to glorify You. That we would follow with great joy and great confidence, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, your Son Jesus Christ, who you sent to die on our behalf so that in him we could be with you forever and ever in great joy. We pray in his sake this morning.
Amen. Let's stand together as we sing of the Lamb who will be with us, leading us before the throne of heaven. Oh, 